Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. Our guest on the podcast today is Sam Elsom, who is one of the co-founders and the CEO of Seaforest, a remarkable Australian startup that is tackling the huge problem of carbon pollution from the livestock industry by growing a special seaweed species called asparagopsis at scale. This is the seaweed where added to the feedstock for these creatures can massively reduce the amount of methane and CO2 these animals produce. It is truly astonishing when you discover the impact this can have when achieved at scale. So I actually live in the same community as Sam up on the northern beaches of Sydney. And you see Sam and his lovely family wandering around and you would never guess that this chap is at the forefront of such an incredible movement and innovation. The Sea Forest guys have just closed out recently a $34 million capital raise to scale their operations down in Tasmania with a view to obviously making sure their technology can then scale around the world because my gosh, do we need to tackle the problem of carbon pollution from the livestock industries. He's not only doing it for the sake of meat and dairy, but also looking at wool. And this is just a captivating tale. The guy used to work in fashion, albeit sustainable fashion, and now he's working in seaweed innovation. I love this conversation. I love the work of Seaforest. Go and check them out and share this podcast around. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find it fascinating. Thanks as always for tuning into the Ocean Impact Podcast. Well, really excited, really stoked to have Sam Elson, co-founder and chief executive of Seaforest on the Ocean Impact podcast today. How are you, mate? Really good, thanks, Tim, and grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. We're pretty lucky. We're, we're tuning in from the northern beaches of Sydney um, on Garingai country. Uh, we've got salt water on both sides of us. We've got the estuary of the Hawkesbury and the Pitwater and the Pacific Ocean on one side. How long have you lived in this part of the world, Sam? Um, wow, nearly 12 years, I think, Tim. Yeah, before that I was in um, the east and suburbs of Sydney, and before that in Noosa, up in Queensland. Yeah. Pretty special part of the world. What do you love about this area? Oh, just the, you know, that we're, we're a stone's throw away from the city, but we feel like we're just miles and miles away, you know. Obviously, it's just an adventure wonderland, the Pitwater, um, and all the national park that we're surrounded by. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. The waves are handy as well. The waves are nice, and uh, today the waves are pumping, so maybe we might reward ourselves after this successful podcast with a little uh, splash in, in the big blue. Yeah, good plan. So, mate, um, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while. Um, your story is remarkable and, uh, and evolving every day, but I suppose I wanted to um, you know, get your sort of snapshot. You've seemed to be, in my mind, a bit of a the poster boy of, of what we would call ocean impact innovation and creating a, a big difference and it seems to have happened really really quickly so why don't you just give us a little bit of a glimpse at um 
when it all started to, to shift for you, when you realized you had to step out of your previous career and your previous passion and focus and into this very big responsibility of trying to draw down carbon and prevent carbon pollution? Yeah, so I think um, I, I've, I've always had environmental leanings and with everything that I've done throughout my career, which was before seaweed was in the fashion industry, um, and was around you know, sustainability and avoiding the use of, of chemicals and, and through the supply chain um, and utilising organic textiles and, and, and innovative with, innovating with circular textiles. But um, I think it really hit home when I was listening to Tim Flannery talk about um, just the exponential rate at which the world is changing as a result of climate change and increasing CO2 temp uh, concentrations in our atmosphere. Um, you know, I've got young kids and, you know, just thinking about this time that we're in and this, this precious time, precious being that we only have 10 years to act at that time, um, to, to sort of reduce emissions as much as we can to, to restore or protect a way of life for our children and for their children. And so, you know, everybody feels, you know, helpless and, and you know, unsure about how, how they can contribute as one person to, to, uh, to make a difference on a, on a global scale. But when Tim was talking about known solutions, you know, things like, crazy solutions like carbon capture, um, you know, using carbon to 3D print, you know, structures and, and, and crazy technology. Um, you know, it, 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 it became apparent to me that there's, there's things we can do, there's, there's solutions we can get behind. And for me, the simplest appeared to be seaweed. You know, seaweed photosynthesizes, it just, it, it just everything that Tim explained just seemed so simple you know and using natural systems to solve a, a global problem and I just thought that I, I couldn't believe that no one was doing it already um, and I was charged to act you know I care about the planet I have deep connection to nature and uh, I, I just wanted to be a part of the solution. I think we all especially if you put yourself in front of people like Tim Flannery and other really eloquent communicators who explain critical importance of acting, like you said, those time frames, you know, we get a sense that it does need to happen quickly, but then when it comes to the practical application of that, it always feels like it takes time, but you seem to have done things really, really quickly. Like when, when was the date when you had that call to arms and, you know, what were the sort of first steps where you realised, okay, I can do this and then maybe a bit of a glimpse at where you're at now in 2021? So it was about um, three years ago, and uh, at the time I was consulting and doing a lot of uh, ESG work for the fashion industry, and then, um, you know, it, it felt to me like you know, I, I was looking for something that would have a greater impact than what I was having you know, um, at the time, and so there was, there was you know, I was poised, you know, I was the archer with the, with the bow, you know, held taut back, ready to ready to fire at something. And I think when I when I heard that from Tim, I, I felt like this is this is something that really the world needs. But also, I was surprised. You know, when I when I once I got going, there's all this knowledge and there's in, all these incredible scientists that have deep understanding of seaweed in our country, but yet no developed industry. 
and so that was astonishing to me because you know think about um, seaweeds and I just assumed that it was a a, um, a global industry you know but it actually is predominantly in there is an industry in, in the northern hemisphere but it's predominantly Southeast Asia and there was no real industry here in Australia so it, it felt like it was not it's never been easy but it's been um, through having the cooperation and 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 of, of some incredible scientists that and using their knowledge to drive things forward so it's just you know having amazing people around me mentors you know Stephen is one of those my co-founder and but also Professor Rocky Denise has been critical he he founded this you know he introduced the asparagopsis into the CSIRO's trials way back in 2016 that led to all of this um, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in a minute. Mm. So you mentioned Stephen Turner, then your co-founder at Seaforest. Um, had you worked with Stephen before? Or how did he come into the picture? Stephen and I met through a mutual friend, um, and uh, you know S Stephen and I are both entrepreneurs and and have been involved in you know taking startups from from concept to sort of multi-million dollar businesses. Um, Stephen's background is in more so in the resources sector, but uh, um, and has a lot more experience than I do, but. Uh, but he's been incredible strategically for the business. And so we, we sat down and had a coffee and our friend of ours said, I swear to God, if you two meet each other, you will wind up doing something together. And uh, she was absolutely right. And we, uh, you know, a few weeks after meeting, we, we started Seaforest together and it's been uh, a really rewarding journey. Amazing. And um, fast forward to 2021, You've just closed a $34 million capital raise and this vision of scaling something which was literally a seed only a few years ago is, is now available to you. It must make you feel incredibly proud but probably a little bit daunting as well. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I'm fortunate to have uh, such an incredible team that surrounds us and, um, you know, we, we are now... You know, we're employing about 30 people down in Tasmania. We've got you know, amazing site and facilities and, and it's all operating like a well-oiled machine, which is fantastic. But it's really, you know, I can't stress enough the importance of having fantastic people around you to implement and, and get things happening quickly. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, I have to pinch myself sometimes because we've been you know, amazingly successful in a short period of time, which I think is partly um, shows that there's a shift in mindset, you know, environmental and social governance is at the forefront of how people are feeling um, with regards to their investments. There's been a you know, huge trend towards divestment away from coal, oil and gas um, and into environmental solutions and we're fortunate to be really in the right place at the right time. I don't know how else to describe it. We'll talk about the, the origins and the science in a minute, but maybe just while we're on that, this incredible situation you find the business in right now like what are some of those targets that you're tracking towards talk about the incredible impact this technology is going to have in in the next few years sure so i mean to start off with the seaweed that we grow predominantly is called asparagopsis and and it's a red seaweed it only grows to around 30 centimeters um, but it's native to australia and new zealand and why that's important is that in Australia, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have much of a developed seaweed aquaculture industry, and that's because most of the species are Northern Hemisphere endemic, and so we're not allowed to grow them in our waters. So that's held back the development of an aquaculture industry in seaweed here in Australia. 
but also provides the opportunity for us over the rest of the world to develop um, an industry around Asparagopsis. The amazing thing about the Asparagopsis is that seaweeds photosynthesize, much like our land-based plants do, um, only they grow up to 30 times faster. So they're super quick growing. You know, they live in uh, their food source, you know, which is the nutrients that they get from the ocean, uh, the CO2 which they get from the ocean, and obviously the sunlight that they get. Um, the whole organism photosynthesizes. Exactly, yeah, that's right. So, um, so they grow so quickly, and then, you know, so we have this positive environmental impact through the cultivation of seaweed, just through the absorption of carbon and, and nitrates. Um, and then through the feeding of this particular seaweed to livestock, we eliminate methane. So that's huge, you know, and I think when you compare that to what the seaweed captures in carbon, it's actually exponentially more. So, you know, on average, uh, a cow will produce four tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year. You know, it's almost as much as, a, as one car. It's an enormous amount. It's not well understood, but methane emissions from the livestock industry are the second largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions globally. Mm. So, you know, sec more than all of the transportation sector and second only to the generation of electricity. So it's huge contribution. Um, and whilst, you know, there is a bit of a shift, I think, in people moving away from red meat consumption, it's an industry that's not going away overnight and it is a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So if we have this solution, and we can grow it in a natural environment and the cultivation of that plant provides a positive environmental outcome, then that's just a win-win. And, and for us, it's collaboration, collaboration with industry, that, you know, seaweed aquaculture industry collaborating with livestock production in Australia. We have a really strong um, you know, potential globally for, for our industry to be more, both industries to be more sustainable. Um, but just to put that in perspective, the goals that we're tracking towards are, you know, feeding over 100,000 head of cattle by next year, um, and which will produce, um, you know, that's about 1,000 tonnes of seaweed per year, and 400,000 tonnes of CO2 equivalent abated or avoided. So huge. Absolutely remarkable. So let's go a little bit deeper into that then, the science and the story behind Asparagopsis. So... Maybe the first question for you is, in that inspiration that you received from Tim Flannery and others, was it immediately like, okay, well, it's about scaling the growing of seaweed to draw down carbon? Like, when did the realisation come that you could not only draw out CO2 from the planet, from the ocean, from atmospheres, but then also have this you know, double impact by integrating it into the livestock industries? So I guess after you know that you know game-changing sort of call with Tim, I, I just I just um, went on this huge deep dive. So I was watching videos, YouTube, I was googling, I was down all sorts of rabbit holes with regards to seaweed. What what could we grow that's native to Australia that grows really quickly? It's going to capture the most amount of carbon. It's, seaweeds are what they call zero input crops. They don't require irrigation, they're unaffected by droughts or fires. So that you know, quite powerful in terms of um, a sustainable crop. Um, and so it was through that deep dive that I discovered, you know, Asparagopsis and the work that was being done at, up at James Cook University with the CSIRO. And you know, for me it was like, okay, well we can grow this red seaweed native to Australia and we can also have a second, you know, 
impact on emissions reduction through feeding it to livestock. So it was like this is a this is kind of a win-win, and I was again right right place, right time. Um, that that was how I, that was sort of how I came across it, and because the whole purpose for growing seaweed in the first place was to create a positive impact on emissions reduction. That's how we sort of that's how see um, that's how asparagopsis was selected. Now here's the fascinating origin story of this whole thing that you're going to recount way better than I will. But yeah, you know, I want to talk about what happens in terms of the science when livestock do you know digest um, seaweed. But the actual scenario where it was discovered that seaweed, when fed to livestock, had this positive impact was in Canada, where uh, a you know a a herd were separated and, and one suddenly started to become more, you, you, you tell the story, it's yeah, amazing. I mean that's right, yeah, so they're up in, um, up near Nova Scotia and, and there was a farmer who had his, had his block um, subdivided and there was a, um, a, a paddock, a herd that had the beachfront for access and then the herd that had the hillside access and it was the farmer's assumption that the hillside herd would do better than the beachside herd just because the pasture was greener on the hill and in fact he found that the seaweed was being eaten by the beachside cattle and that they were growing a little bit faster and he couldn't quantify it he didn't really understand that it was the seaweed at the time but he took his tractor out being a farmer and just thought I'll try this and see if that's what it is and in fact he found the same results so that's that's sort of where the story starts with seaweed and so that the cows were naturally eating the seaweed and what's interesting about that is that it's been a practice that's happened for a really long time. So cattle used to, well, seaweed used to be part of the cattle, cattle's diets a long time ago. Um, and that's because they get mineral supplements. So they get salts and, and minerals from seaweed, much like they do now and from salt licks and things that they put in fields for in cattle production. So, um, you know, it, it was a natural discovery. Um, this was a bull kelp that they were eating, so it's a slightly different species of seaweed, but it's the same thing, you know, the seaweeds are full of um, salt and minerals, um, and but also all sorts of other things like omega-3s and proteins and fibres that, that they need in their diet. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's really interesting that this all came about by accident. Fascinating. I do want to ask the question um, about that sort of evolutionary story, but just tell us quickly, like, what is the scientific process which is happening in the gut which prevents so much methane and CO2 emissions from the livestock? Sure. So livestock produce methane through the process of enteric fermentation. Essentially, um, the enzymes create methane, which is expelled by the animal, and it's basically because they, they chew and digest and chew and digest. And what happens when you include asparagopsis, asparagopsis is, of all the 14,000 species of seaweed, has a unique chemistry. And inside the seaweed, these bioactive compounds react with those enzymes and disrupt the enzymatic pathway that leads to the production of methane. And what happens is they convert that which would have been expelled by the animal as a gaseous waste product into energy, which the cow uses to grow. So they actually have this positive environmental outcome coupled with an increase in productivity. So we're making more money for farmers as well as um, reducing their environmental footprint. Which really gets to that previous point, like nature detests waste. So here you have cattle and livestock that we're obviously, you know, we're bred and we're ranching in a certain way that's creating, creating all this carbon-rich emissions from it when in a normal natural environment 
you just don't create waste. Nature really, really avoids it. So back to the evolutionary story, at what point of this journey of humanity did we start to steer cattle and livestock and many other domesticated animals away from these natural interactions that would perhaps you know, really greatly reduce the amount of waste that's coming out of the animal? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I wonder whether it's to do with intensive farming or, or you know, um, yeah, but, but we could ask the same question of a lot of food production today. You know, I think originally chickens weren't supposed to be so plump. Um, you know, they, they were quite lean apparently and would run around the place. So I, I think it's the same of cattle. Um, but, but to answer your question, I think it's just, um, you know, wanting to do things outside of their natural environment, you know, for, Having intensive feedlots in Texas, for example, in the middle of the country where they don't have access to any of this sort of stuff, is is one example. Mm. Um, so you know we've we have a lot to answer for, I think, as a human race in the way that we've kind of intensified food production and and maybe let go of a lot of um, the natural systems that were in place once before. And I think that we're we're learning more and more about that. But uh, as we do, we understand that we we need to nourish ourselves, nourish our bodies and make sure that the food that comes in you know, was, was raised in a way that's sustainable and that was you know, the animal itself was eating correctly um, and not pushed to the brink of um, breakdown. So a happy accident um, and you have found yourself actually working with you know, many of the best scientists in the world who stumbled across this happy accident along with the other, with the farming um, community. So. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the the scientists that you work with and how that is such an integral part of a, building a successful venture like this. It, it has been so so early on. You know, both Stephen and I had no background in seaweed. Um, you know, we had a very strong desire and ambition to get this company off the ground and to do you know what we what we have now uh, on the journey of of achieving. Um, but so what we did was we approached. You know, literally, when I, I, I was on, sitting on my father-in-law's couch when I was watching um, some ABC, and I saw uh, Rob Kinley talking about, Rob Kinley's a scientist of the CSIRO, and um, he was talking about this seaweed. I called Rob and said, tell me about the seaweed. And then he said, well, if you really want to know about seaweed, you have to speak to Professor Rocky Denise. He's the guru. And then I spoke to Rocky, and Rocky said, if you really want to know about seaweed, you've got to speak to the godfather of seaweed. So then I was on the phone to Dr. Craig Sanderson, who's down in Tasmania, and is now out, out, works for Seaforest as well as, as well as does Rocky. Um, but if it wasn't for, you know, that, um, you know, just the, the, I think I don't know if they they're just humouring me or if they you know if they weren't so inclusive and forthcoming with information and, and really optimistic um, you know that scientific community then we, we were really embraced and I think it's through that um, that we've been able to you know learn really quickly and and also build this incredible team so now we have an amazing team of scientists which encompasses basically the world's leading scientists in asparagopsis and other seaweeds um, as well as ruminant digestive experts and things so it's been lots of collaboration um, and you know what one of one of the other things we did as a company is to as soon as we started we commissioned research at three separate universities which were seen to be leaders in in the seaweed 
And so we had the University of Waikato, University of Tasmania, James Cook University, all, all working on solving scientific problems and closing the knowledge gaps. When you say commission, did you need to help paid. with funding? You paid. paid. Yeah, okay. we paid. We paid for research to be done, and we identified where the, what we knew and what we didn't know, and then we just went really quickly. And so we had an operating farm down in Tasmania, and we were converting those scientific outcomes into standard operating procedures that we put into put into action the following week. So we just went really quickly around using science to answer these questions, you know, of natural systems. Um, and it's been a really rewarding process, you know, just asking questions of nature and using science to solve these or understand better natural processes. It's, um, it's amazing. So we're thankful to have incredible people around us and it, it all starts with science. Seaweed is extremely complicated and, you know, I was naive at the time and I think that was probably a good thing um, because, you know, the seaweed that we grow is, it has three life phases. So it's nothing like land-based plants. It reproduces three times, turns into three completely visually um, unique um, kind of uh, organisms along the way. And then some of them reproduce with male and females. Other, other life phases produce asexually. It's, it's super complex science. And that's true of pretty much all seaweeds. And so uh, it's been... But, but for me, it's just been fascinating. I feel like I'm in a David Attenborough um, documentary every day. <laughs> Love it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the growing processes in a minute, but um, I know there's going to be so many budding e ocean impact entrepreneurs listening in who are going, wow, you know, Sam just did a deep dive online, he watched YouTube videos, and then he just approached the best people in the business and they started working with him. Like, yeah. let's not be, let's not, you know, be, um, be shy about that fact. That doesn't probably happen every day. Like, you obviously brought Stephen and you brought yourself. You're a successful entrepreneur and you've obviously come with a very driven attitude. Like, do you have a little maybe lesson or a bit of wise words there for people that are in that position? They want to be just like Sammy, but they just don't know what it's going to take to actually get heard and to take those meaningful steps towards creating something. Yeah, so there's Tim. There's a lot of luck, you know. I can't, I can't deny that. And um, you know, there's a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, some of it is the pure virtue of the fact that when the CSIRO discovered that the C and the James Cook University discovered that the seaweed worked, there was a bottleneck. You know, they they collected the seaweed off the reef, and they didn't have any solutions for large scale cultivation. We have over 30 million head of cows in the in the country and that's only 3% of the global population. So we need, you know, a lot of seaweed. And so there was no supply. So we, from that very first conversation with Rob Kinley, I recognized that there was a huge opportunity here if livestock producers were willing to embrace it and to reduce their emissions, which I've been surprised to find that they have been. Um, but, you know, in terms of putting the team together, I mean, I think it's the individuals that were involved that have been, have helped, you know, like, they're really good people. Everybody gets along well. We've built an amazing culture of collaboration. There's no egos at play. You know, that's an accident. We can't choose the le world's leading experts in asparagopsis. They just they are, by virtue of their academic career, um, the, the, you know their personalities. We couldn't choose, but they happen to be fantastic people. The other is um, the other is not assuming to know everything. I ne we never went into this, you know pretending that we knew more than we did. We're just always asking questions and being inquisitive and, and listening and learning and 
you know, um, early on, Rocky was sending me reams and reams and reams of published literature to get read through, and I felt like I was doing my own postdoc <laughs> on seaweed. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the rapid learning started from the first phone call. Um, but I think, and, and also just to, to add, you know, when I did make those first phone calls and I'm asking them about seaweed, I have no idea about seaweed and they're talking about gametophytes and tetrasporophytes and diploid and haploid life and, and just all sorts of different things that I, I was all completely over my head and I was trying to just contribute without looking like an idiot. Um, and that's since changed, but I, I feel that you just have to be completely yourself. I, I think um, had I maybe approached this with the pretending that I knew more than I did or, or assuming to, to, or coming across with any kind of ego, I don't think I would have had the same collaboration. Well, there's your wise words, folks. So let's talk through the process then. So you've identified the species, you've got the scientists on, on board, you've commissioned this research. How does it then go to your first sort of land-based production? Um, and then where are you sort of at now? What's going to be the mix of land versus ocean? How are you going to make this happen at scale? Okay, so we 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 just we learned the seaweed. We built we learned about the sparagopsis. We built the team that was going to help us move things forward. We had the commissioned research, and then we needed to find the best location in Australia, but really it could have been anywhere in the world at that time. It was pre-COVID um, to to grow the seaweed, and so we found that a, a spot down in Tasmania where the seaweed was annually abundant. So the seaweed is native to Australia. There's a tropical and, and temperate variety. So the tropical variety is called Asparagopsis taxiformis and the temperate variety is Asparagopsis armata. We grow the temperate variety um, down in Tasmania and the site where we are, it's just on the southeast coast of Tasmania, has annually abundant. It's quite seasonal everywhere else in Australia. So you'll only find it a few months of the year. And so um, we were fortunate enough to secure through the godfather, Craig Sanderson, a, um, an amazing site down there with access to, to, to fresh seawater. So we have facilities um, where we had lab and hatchery where we were able to engage in the science and get things moving. So, and, and, and so, um, you know, since through COVID and, and over the last two, three years really, we've had um, been learning and developing methods for at scale cultivation so we can now grow the seaweed on land and at and in the ocean subsequently upon after developing methods we've now secured an 1800 hectare marine lease in mercury passage which is the the largest marine lease in the southern hemisphere it's absolutely huge um, it was previously used for scallops and then after that mussels and so we're growing the seaweed um, in the ocean now and on land in land-based tanks and so the, the importance of having two methods for cultivation we often get asked this why, why are we growing it in the ocean or why, why are we bothering on land and what we're thinking is that there are all these other areas in the world where we need to get the seaweed the last thing we want to do is to have a solution to emissions when you're then going to go fly it to the northern hemisphere from ta down Tasmania so what we want to do is rather than transport the seaweed to um, other areas, we'd rather transport the technology. And so we'll license or help facilitate um, the global supply of seaweed using land-based cultivation, which can be done in, in northern parts of um, the globe. So incredible. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how it can integrate with 
existing aquaculture. You know, aquaculture in some sectors is getting a bit of a, a bad um, rap at the moment, and that's true of, of Tasmania with um, with some of the salmon farms that have just seemed to have grown really rapidly in the last decade and, and left quite a, um, a nasty legacy in their wake. So how do you see um, asparagopsis harvesting integrating with other forms of aquaculture? Is there any synergy there? I mean, obviously these waters become very nutrient rich as a result of things like salmon farming. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's been a lot of work on what they call multi-trophic um, aquaculture or integrated aquaculture. And um, you know, the seaweeds do need nutrients, as you as you pointed out. Um, you know, fin fish uh, um, create CO2, and they you know through their effluent create nutrients, um, and which can be used as food, a food source. It, it hasn't been quantified scientifically how that actually you know works or, or where the nutrient travels to. Um, but but certainly you know I'm I'm open to you know to collaborating with to try and have a, a better environmental outcome and if we can achieve that i think that's a great thing at the moment sea forest is concentrating on the cultivation of seaweed our, our oceans are quite acidic due to the warming and so you know we want to try to 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 rather than increasing the amount of fin fish farming in the ocean for example we'd rather try to reduce the co2 concentration of our existing waterways yeah and when you talk about that sort of exporting of the technology and I suppose those vision uh, guides that you might have up on the whiteboard when you imagine the future of sea forest, does it ever start to look like it's going to branch away from um, this particular focus on seaweed to feed livestock? Is it ever going to go elsewhere or is it never say never or are you focused right now on, on this particular mission? Yeah, we, well, I mean, we're definitely focused on this mission because... Um, you know, whilst it's a solution and it was a scientific concept at the time, it was never going to work unless there was an industry-scale supply of seaweed. And so that's why Sea Forest has gone so quickly to develop this 1,800 hectare marine farm um, and to get that a large volume of seaweed to the marketplace um, as quickly as possible to have the impact that we want and we need on emissions reduction for, for climate change. Um, however, you know, having this leading scientific team um, you know, retaining the company, we've we've also developed methods for for cultivating all sorts of other seaweeds, and so, you know, there's as I mentioned earlier, something like fourteen thousand species, of all the species, um, of all those species, sea for oh sorry, Australia is the most biodiverse place on the planet. We, in particular, down in Tasmania, probably have more of those species than anywhere else in the world, and so you know. We've discovered some amazing and really unique flavour profiles of some native seaweeds, and we've 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 begun um, culturing those in the hatchery and, and looking at growing them some some of them out on the marine farm. So there's seaweeds like Macrocystis, um, there's uh, Chetomorpha, Calerpa, lots of different other seaweeds that have really amazing flavours. So some, you know, crunchy and taste like fresh cucumber. Um, others taste like anchovies you know it's just amazing so there's all of that side of things as well we'd, we'd love to help um, educate and facilitate an understanding of our native seaweeds and maybe have, even have those incorporated in our diets in time and this is the beautiful thing I mean you really are starting to lead from the front of the pack with sea forest but there is an emerging seaweed industry in Australia there's some great modeling to show how it can grow significantly in the next 10 to 15 years 
and everyone, I'm sure you get this more than anyone, is so inspired by the concept, whether it is seaweed being integrated into livestock feed, is it getting sequestered to the bottom of the ocean, is it coming back on our dinner plates or our snacks, we're going to talk to the, um, the guys from uh, Akua in the future who have alg burgers and alg jerky, like it's, it's just a remarkable space to be playing in. You're absolutely right. It, it, I think it's because it's so simple. It's like, so it's, simple. it's always been there, you know. The funny thing about the ocean is that we, we drive across it. You know, we look at it when we look at the horizon. You know, we watch the surf, but it's rare that we get underneath. And it's all, the magic is all underneath the ocean. So, uh, all underneath the surface. So, um, yeah, for me, it's like um, just developing that, understanding it. And there's so much in the world that we don't know a lot about. and, and and it's, for me, it's an exciting opportunity rather than, you know, a challenge in any way. I think it's, um, yeah, it's just so exciting to be a part of that and, and learning more about all our natural native plants. The, the other thing is we have, and Tim does, a, um, does an amazing job of articulating this, but that we, we've run out of land mass to grow enough trees to have an impact on climate change now. But we have a most enormous expanse of ocean to be able to cultivate seaweed to have a, a real impact on emissions and, and in a reasonable time frame. So it's it's not um, you know it's it's not uh, astrophysics. It's it's very real and 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 really quite simple. Yeah, as long as you can solve the challenges of the scaling. We had Tim on the podcast recently, and he was talking about when he realised that you know humanity had no way of acting in time to stop that 1.5 degrees of warming so it had to shift across to drawdown and he said he looked at something like 10,000 applications from the Virgin Earth Prize to show how technologists around the world were saying we could draw carbon down rapidly and what came up to the top? Good old seaweed. It's amazing isn't it? Yeah, I just, um, yeah. It's like a, a, a natural solution that was under our nose the entire time. Yeah, and in doing so, we can hopefully restore the balance and the health of the ocean because as with all the branding and communications with OIO, we hammer home that point that it is planet ocean. Like You let that juggernaut go and fall into disrepair and we get flicked off like a flea on a dog's back. Like We just cannot occupy this blue marble without a healthy ocean. So we've got to shift that focus yeah. and that thinking. Absolutely, you know, most of the oxygen that we get, isn't it? Yeah. It comes from the ocean. You know, Every a lot second breath. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that. So tell me about some of the brands and uh, industries that you're working with. Obviously, it sounds to me like you're on your way towards scaling and obviously driven to produce as much product as possible, but I'm guessing the demand is really significant and your supply is catching up. Where's the demand coming from who are you working with it's it's been it's been amazing you know to to see the the swell of interest in what we're doing from industry you know we we were weren't sure how our industry would, would engage with the solution or, or how they felt about emissions um particularly methane emissions calculations and, and things being um uh, a point of contention at times um, but industry in particular Australian industry has, has really engaged so we've we've been working since July last year with a, a farmer in Tasmania called Simon Cameron who's he's a, on a farm called Kingston in, in the Midlands he's been feeding his merino sheep for now nearly 12 months 
and so what he's been doing is working MJ Baylor's Ford purchased all of that wool which is quite exciting and they'll make a carbon neutral product out of that which is which is sort of the first time anyone in the public is been, going to be able to engage with this it's really quite exciting he's he's amazing and most progressive farmer you know something like fourth or fifth generation wool farmer in Australia so um, fantastic guy and really excited by by being involved and then another farmer that we're working with is um, uh, down in Tasmania as well so he's part of he's a Fonterra farmer so we've got 1200 head of cattle down there feeding on asparagopsis and um, and that's been you know amazing as well they've been on on feed since December last year and so they've been looking at things like um, you know residues in milk products and feed from a food safety standpoint and and uh, that's been going really well so um yeah and so and then you know obviously industry you know we've, we've been speaking to pretty much every major beef and, and dairy producer in the country um over the past few months so yeah really there's a, just a huge swell of interest and it's it's really quite exciting and this is i guess the really the, the one of the most remarkable things about what you're working on is that Sure, it's about this massive reduction in carbon emissions, but it's the productivity and potentially in the in the space of wool and dairy, a better product mm. at the end as well. Mm. I mean, you know, so the thing is, you know, the landscape when we started was that Meat and Livestock Australia and Dairy Australia, both industry bodies, had set 2030 carbon neutral targets and they'd thrown millions and millions at trying to find solutions. So they looked at breeding programs, vaccines, you know, even thrown a lot of money at uh, soil carbon offsets um, but you know upon the discovery of asparagopsis there's been nothing that's come close to it and so industry was aware and on this kind of trajectory before we got there um, and I think uh, it's it's what was the question just talking about the productivity. Oh yeah, so one of the things is that, that, that I think is really important here is that farmers, if you think back to, um, you know, when we were having bushfires and, and, and you know, beef producers were destocking, you know, they're not in a position to pay more. And so everybody wants an environmental outcome, and I think even farmers included, and, but, you know, they just can't pay more than what they already are for, for solutions. Um, Unless it's going to deliver them a bottle, you know, some type of return on investment, and that could be through, you know, carbon credits, through abatement credits, um, and the other is through productivity gains, which we can get from the seaweed, which is fantastic. And the last one is through a differentiated product on the supermarket shelf. So, having a, a carbon neutral stamp on their product might offer them that um, opportunity to have a price premium, and hopefully consumers will recognise that that's. Uh, Gone, come about as an extra expense to the farm to the farmer, and, and and worthwhile investing in as a consumer. I loved on that landline episode where it visited the the wool farm and it was showing a little bit about how they actually you know distribute the the product to the livestock, but the actual quantity that is required to activate the process. I thought it was originally a little bit high, but you're finding out it can actually be a really, really small quantity of their feed. What are the sort of percentages that are required in certain different livestock? Yeah, so it's you can it's only 0.2% of the animal's diet. So that that equates to, you know, in a cow, for example, it equates to anywhere between 20 and 30 grams per animal per day of seaweed. And to put that in perspective they would eat something like 15 kilograms of feed per day. So it's a tiny less than a fistful of seaweed to have this huge impact on emissions. So yeah, just a very small amount, Tim. 
How is it? How is the application process? <coughs> I saw there was like some linseed oil and different versions. Are you trialling different ways of actually distributing the food to them? We are. So we've been working closely with different farmers. So um, you know, the way where you, the the medium for delivery for say Simon Cameron is different to say Richard Gardner and and different again for say feedlots. So what we're trying to do is work with industry to develop methods for delivery that suit existing infrastructure on farm. So we don't want to have we don't want farmers to have to you know fork out for new infrastructure to deliver the feed and so we're trying to work with with them to to work out the most efficient way for their farm and so yeah that that means a freeze dry product in some cases it means immersing it in oil in others you know there's like a, a, a almost like a seaweed pesto that we create in some other cases so seaweed well, pesto yeah. first I love it. Look, I'm getting to the end of um, a lot of the questions I had to go, so we'll only have a few more minutes left in this chat. But um, I suppose just personally, like sort of back to that realisation, a lot of people listening in are really enthusiastic about how they can contribute to a better future by you know, building or joining businesses that are driven by impact. Like, How has it been personally? Like, Maybe give a bit of a heart on your sleeve expression of the hard bits the great bits and, and everything in between yeah so I think you know for me I feel like this has been the most rewarding journey of my life without a doubt you know so and you know partially you know I'm thankful to everybody that's in a part of the sea forest family and and the team that we've built um, for the culture that we have um, and that's not I'm not responsible for that alone. You know, that's a, that's been a group effort, and the progress that we made has been definitely a group effort. Um, and the thing that I would say is, you know, you just got to encourage conversations. You know, this this sea forest started with a conversation with me picking up the phone, making a cold call to a scientist I'd never known, just because I wanted to learn more. And I think that there are a myriad of solutions on the planet that we can that can make a, a real difference. And it's just about picking up the phone and making a call and then doing something about it. You know, so we don't have all the answers and, and we don't, we're not all experts, but there are experts in the world that might be able to help if we ask the right questions. Mm. So then I guess the other side of that question being like, you know, how, how do you cope? I'm sure there's times when it does get super stressful. You're the chief executive. You've got a very high profile board now. You've got a team that depends upon you. Is... From a culture perspective, you know, is that your personal leadership? Is it about knowing how you operate best and putting boundaries around it? How have you sort of created a space that you can be the best version of yourself in your professional context? Yeah, okay, so that's a great question. I think one, one of the things early on is that we, you know, this is an environmental company. You know, we, we call ourselves an environmental technology company, being that we've sort of unlocked the secrets to how to cultivate this seaweed at scale. And um, part of that is, and, and you know, we, we did raise money, as you pointed out early on, and, and so when you're, you know, attracting investment, you know, it's not just about taking money, but it's also about finding suitable, suitably and environmentally aligned individuals that are going to be the right partners on the journey with you. And, um, you know, we're very fortunate to be supported by um, some incredibly um, committed individuals in the environmental space. And so I think, you know, we're all passionate about the same things and so I think when, when making decisions we are doing so with you know, the planet in mind as much as we are you know, commercially wanting to do the best thing for the company. I love that and I think 
that is so not to be underestimated. Um, and you love, I mean, this is, comes out so clearly in all your communications when you're talking about um, the journey over the last few years. It is the it comes down to the fact that we just have no time to waste. Like it feels to me like you're growing and scaling as fast as you possibly could because from the outside it looks really fast. But you know you're you're so driven by your vision and your mission that I'm sure you'd happily go twice as fast because you know just how critical it is that we get this carbon out of the atmosphere. Absolutely, yeah. We we, we can't. We couldn't go fast enough. I mean. Um, it, it hasn't come without sacrifice, Tim. You know, like my family live in Sydney. I, I'm in Hobart 80, 80% of my time. Um, you know, that, that's been a challenge being away from the family. And I'm, I'm thankful that they are so supportive. Um, you know, Sheree and the kids are, have been down a few times, but, but you know, she, she has to, you know, deal with the load of, of all of that and support the family. But we're all, we're all on, you know, care about this mission together. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's an obvious challenge. But, you know, in terms of going quickly, I just think that, as you pointed out, I don't think there's any other way to go about it. You know, we, we need that. We need to make a change. We need it to happen yesterday. Yeah. And that's why I'm so, I mean, a big part of our focus at OIO is to put Australia on the map as a world leader in creating and exporting these ocean solutions. And, you know, it's, it's people like you and this wonderful community that is aggregating around people like Tim Flannery and others and it just feels like this is the place to go and play. So for all those budding entrepreneurs out there, I hope you've really enjoyed this chat. It's not, um, you know, there's other stuff out there online about Sam and I think everything that you communicate is eloquent and inspiring and uh, I just can't wait to see where it goes next, mate. Happy to call you a, a friend and uh, an ally in the fight for a healthier planet ocean. Likewise, Tim. Thanks so much. And we're, we're also at Sea Forest, a huge supporter of Ocean Impact Organisation, and uh, yeah, we're really proud of the things that you guys are doing. Any final words, or maybe just send um, folk to where they can find out more information? Sure. I mean, we've got a website. Um, a great website, yeah, I might add. Seafirest.com.au. Uh, yeah, we've got, you can follow us on Instagram. Um, you know, reach out, send us an email. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and and keep, keep an eye out for employment opportunities too. You know, we've, we're always looking for young and, and in, you know, hungry individuals to come and help us, you know, fight the environmental fight. I reckon there is a ton of them listening to this podcast today. Super. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Matt, very, very welcome. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.